0: So, Mike, we're wondering, that when was the last time you saw Trading Places? It's been, a, it's been a number of
1: years for me, and we were wondering, would it hold up? I've seen it relatively recently. It's a fantastic movie. Um, uh, I think it holds up reasonably well. It's a little dated. Some of the humor relies on recognizing Ralph Bellamy and Don Amici.
0: Mm. <laughs>
1: and then, <laughs> that's an obvious <laughs> boundary condition for... <laughs> Modern audiences. Uh, plus of course, then you see coming to America, uh, and, and they have a cameo, right? They show up, uh, the, the two old guys show up and coming to America. So this, right. um, uh, anyway, I, so anyway, I, I, we laugh still, <laughs> Okay. But then, you know, I still laugh at old Mel Brooks movies. So I remember
0: coming to America as being terrible. Like that's my recollection of it. Um, but my recollection of Trading Places is that it was actually quite, quite good.
1: I agree on both counts. Huh. But there was this moment in coming, coming to America where you saw Ralph Bellamy and Don Amici as, as older homeless men by the side of the road. And ah, right. There's that moment of recognition and then the movie moves on.
2: <laughs> so it wasn't coming to America. It wasn't that like, was it, it was one of the Eddie Murphy comebacks? Or was this still? Because I feel like it, like Beverly Hills Cop, Beverly Hills Cop 2, It's like just we're just going to pay money just to see Eddie Murphy on the screen, like because he's he's such a hot star. And then right, and then maybe not. I don't remember where it,
0: coming. And in Beverly in a, Hills in that Cop, arc.
2: that that intuition was totally justified.
0: I remember that being an awesome movie. Yeah, I wonder if that holds up. The first one. Yeah, yeah, Judge
1: Reinhold. I mean, it was really good. Uh, you know, interestingly, to me, the, the most durable part of Beverly Hills Cop is neither Eddie Murphy nor Judge Reinhold. It's John Ashton, who's the older police detective, the straight one who plays mm-hmm. with Judge Reinhold. And and he had a long, really great career as a character actor. Huh.
0: Can't even picture him. Was his head kind of round and was he a bit balding? Right on both counts. And a, and maybe a mustache? blonde yep. mustache? Yep. Yeah, so I can picture this guy. Yeah, he's a sort of, Like, you would cast him if it was a small part and the, and the guy was going to have a stroke like about a third of the way through oh the boy. movie. Yeah. You would cast him for that part because that's totally believable. Like, he had this tension about him that... You feel like okay, he's
2: he's got to have cardiovascular issues. <laughs> I remember nothing about that movie. I mean i I remember like loving. I remember all those kids wearing like the Mumford High School Athletics Club yeah. shirt around, or is that what it was? I don't remember. And I just, I just, want, remember to, being I just really... want to
0: be clear for everybody. I say that as someone who is usually about four minutes from stroking out myself. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not trying to be critical in an yeah. unfair manner. You're just saying
2: that's the type of that's yeah. the casting exactly. Yeah, I remember Axel F. I remember the theme. You mm. remember? You remember that little dude? yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow! So there you go. Um, so well, that's all we have time for today, Mike. So, uh, <laughs>
1: hey, and, I could keep going on '80s movie trivia.
0: And Bronson Pinchot played uh, Serge. Serge. Oh, S- Iron. Serge. Now that was a little. There was some. there's sort of some homophobia in in the Eddie Murphy scene with Serge that that I think probably wouldn't hold up. Actually, just, now that just a tad. Now that I think about it, hmm. but what a you know even Homer nods. It was just locker room talk. What are you going to
2: do? <laughs> Locker room talk. Nice. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we want to, do we want to keep going down this road? I, I, I'll go wherever you want to go. This, I mean, it's your show, Joe. No, it's, I'm your guest. You, it's your show, man. Um, so Mike, obviously we invited you on to talk about my paper. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, no, no, actually, but, Joe, I think Joe invited you on to talk about his paper. Is that right, Joe? Ah. Uh, I guess. <laughs> a, a Christian's urging.
1: Uh, I believe that, I believe that that's why we are here. Mm. We are gathered at yeah. Christians
2: urging, Yeah, no, I definitely at my urging because I, I think it's a, uh, you know, Joe has written a, a really interesting, fantastic article, which is kind of the Marx, n- not exactly the beginning, because this is not your first piece in this genre, but it is one of your opening, opening moves, opening gambits in a, in a, in a move to kind of transform the world about uh, transform the world of legal thinking about, about the way we think of precedent, really. I mean, this is, it's huge, potentially huge. Could be. So here's what we thought. Like, instead of just, like, Joe and me talking about this, um, we need someone else who can bring more to the table, which, is, <laughs> that I mean, that's almost so sounds... So grab when, when anybody, I it, and when Mike I, happened to be near, nearby. When, when I put it like that, it almost sounds redundant. Like, of course, we need someone else to bring more to the table. <laughs> uh, uh, but, but, Mike, you, you and Joe know each other kind of professionally, and you're in the IP world. Joe's first article in this vein, I think it was your first, right? It was about IP, it was about the IP cases, and this is your second. Do I have that right, Joe? Uh, this, the first and second are both about IP jurisprudence.
0: They're doing different things, and the second one has a bigger data set than the first. Okay, and and in part because the first was at a time when I was, it was less clear to me. For example, how much Supreme Court citations focus on their own prior cases and not much else. Mm-hmm. That was a fact I learned along the way, mm-hmm. uh, which has been documented in a number of different citation studies, and I certainly found that to be true in the IP area as well. So in the first study, I actually tracked the court citations in their IP cases to all prior case law sources, courts of appeals, district courts,
2: right? Well, let me, let me set it up. But let me, it just turns out there's not much there. I'm going to stop you. I'm going to set it up, and then I'm going to kind of throw it over to Mike for, to, for, the, for the better setup. Okay. So how does that sound? <laughs> Is this a good plan? Do we have a we have a plan? I love it. I'm a guest. <laughs> yep. That's good. Um, this is going to be the a classic oral argument episode. I, th- I, I can I can smell it. I think that's that smell. I'm not sure. It might but, be the coffee, but... it might be the coffee. But the, the upshot is that Joe is has has um, done a study where he's basically counting citations. He's going through a body of cases. And counting uh, their citations to other cases, and building a network map of how all these cases cite one another, and and then doing some do, then doing an analysis an analysis based on co-citation, like which cases get cited together, and so the general project is is about like tracking patterns of citation and building up network maps of cases, and then saying interesting things or observing interesting things using. Inference techniques about such networks uh, that have been pioneered in other areas, kind of bringing all of those things together to create really new interesting maps of the legal world, which are based not on semantic analysis, doctrinal analysis of the kind that um, like legal scholars would ordinarily do, but neither is it based on kind of just purely attitudinal observations like political scientists um, uh, typically do. I mean, there are all kinds of techniques political scientists use. But it's interesting uh, in, in the way that you – by kind of tracking citations, Joe, you're trying to take advantage of what we call semantic information or something that means something. I mean, someone who cites another case when they're writing an opinion means something by that. And so there's some meaning embedded in that citation. So I don't, the general thrust of this thing is to say something about a practice in a given area of law by tracking – what cases cite what other cases and building out a network and saying things about that network. So that I'm just trying to get that the the general scope of the project out before we dive into details. I don't know, Mike, how would you when you first read this piece or, or maybe one of the earlier ones, how, how did you how, how did you encounter the project?
1: So I I'm going to ask Joe in a minute. Sort of what was the intuition that sort of launched him uh, on this pathway? Because I read two or three different things that strike me in the in the project in general and in the Paper, One of which, Christian, overlaps with the way you describe it, which is very much an extension and a novel intervention in the kind of um, sort of network mapping as a metaphor of citation practices and the character of legal authority in legal systems. And that part of the project is evoked by the quotation from Fred Schauer that begins the paper. Fred Schauer being a extremely well-known and highly regarded scholar of uh, of law, legal systems, precedent, authority, and so on. There's a, a second character to the project overlapping with the first that takes the mapping idea and makes it much more literal because of the visualizations that accompany the analysis of the data. And I found the visualization aspect of the project very, very exciting and compelling in its own right. And the third thing that sort of leapt out at me, and it was, it, it wasn't, I would say, a consistent theme throughout the paper, but it was repeated as a kind of motif here and there in a way that I, I really noticed, was the, the references to signs and symbols. and how the sort of the network topography is anchored in this self-referential system of signs and symbols that almost recalled for me sort of a, you know, sort of evoking semiotics and, uh, and, and sort of the, the, that literature uh, again in a an overlapping but somewhat distinct sense so i w- i was I was you know hearing lots of different things going on here, all of which were really stimulating and exciting to me because of their uh, just the novelty of it and sort of the the landscape of potential that's being opened on all of these fronts. but I was really interested to hear from Joe so what was his point of entry, either one of those three or or something else
0: well the the point of entry w- which led to the first paper in this series. This is the third that we're talking about. But the, I mean, it all began because I was trying to understand. I, I had an intuition that the Supreme Court's uh, practices in explaining its decisions in patent cases would be, would be demonstrably different from its practices in explaining its copyright and trademark decisions. And so I thought, well, okay, um, one of the ways to help get at that would be to talk about the fact that they discuss different authorities in those cases. Uh, And surely someone has already done that. And I can just go read what they've said and I can – that could be part of the discussion I offer in this overall, a larger discussion about the way they're approaching these different bodies of law. And so I went looking for that stuff and it didn't exist. (laughs) I was like, well, this is odd. Uh, I guess I need to do it. Uh, because it's not there yet, and it would be awfully helpful and And so you know again, my, my hypothesis, uh, their patent cases will look demonstrably different. Well, they don't, at least not with respect to the way the court takes a, a current decision and writes it in such a way that it weaves it into its prior decisions, which is one way I think about what citations do. So you know, there's mapping, there's there's
2: sort of the web of the law as the law as a as a fabric. And let me just say to listeners right now, I mean, even if you're not in the habit of downloading the paper, I think you'll appreciate this whole conversation better if you download the paper and um, which is linked up in the show notes. And even if you don't read it all, you can kind of read. I, I, I commend it to you. But um, but just look at some of the charts that Joe has. There's some of the appendix. There are some scattered throughout the paper of these networks and it'll give you a much better idea of what we're talking about and the way that the visualization of this is serving some of the interests that Joe's talking about now. So
0: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, this is a this this is definitely a visual uh, a set of visual techniques, visualization techniques. That's and that's another thing. I mean, I think so once I started down the road of trying to understand how we might characterize the the court's output in IP cases as as a, a thing to be described. Uh, semantically and including the way it its it citation practices help it explain its outcomes, you know once once I got into it, I was like, "Oh my gosh, you, you can start using these tools of data of, of network mapping and data visualization." And that's a sort of we're in a golden age of data visualization. I, I think the tools for it are easier to use for people who, like me, don't have any kind of programming chops or anything like that. It, there are now tools that are that are that are usable by somebody like me, which is great because that's a barrier to engaging in d- data visualization. Uh, uh, Techniques uh, that's really fallen. Now, there are probably some people who are like, yeah, idiots like Joe Miller can now do things that don't really make sense or that aren't appropriate or whatever. And, I, sp- <laughs> and, and I, I mean, I don't think that would be, a, a that's not a fair criticism of, of
2: this paper. Although Someone's I, handed you a loaded empirical gun. Right. And I, yeah. <laughs> and, you, and, you I and you start targeting off.
0: things, right. <laughs> um, and I, and you know, my, my, my stats background from my psych graduate work, I mean, I'm not unsympathetic to the idea that you, people can use statistical methods or other analytical methods in in a in a way they're not really suited to be used, so they're sort of generating mm-hmm. a little bit of nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 because I'm sensitive to that, I think I I can say truly and fairly, I, I don't think I'm falling prey to that. But um, but you know, the more people who are doing this sort of thing, the more that would out anyway. And right. I would incur. I, I hope more people will start to do more of this sort of stuff. There aren't that many people. Doing things of this nature in law right now, uh, and I wish there were more um, but so so the visualization stuff is just like, well, the techniques and tools are available, and I love seeing data visualization of all kinds. Uh, some of my Some of the stuff in my Twitter feed is from people who routinely post data visualizations of various kinds, and so I just love that sort of graphical presentation of stuff because I really do think it helps me understand things better. Were you a map kid? Do you like looking at maps as a kid? I, adored it, yeah. love it, yeah, yeah, and yeah. still like. If I'm gonna, if I take a trip to a city I've never been to before, before I go, I will spend some time just poring over maps
2: of that city. Oh, I, I just figured you would not go. <laughs> 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 We've nice. already established on the show, I think uh, uh, a year ago or more, that if um, that this is the reason you don't, you aren't directed by a GPS, like because you're not going to drive on unfamiliar roads. But, <laughs> Let's not do that. <laughs>
1: Um. <laughs> but but that's actually as a biographical matter, that's a really interesting tidbit because I'm also sort of map obsessed mm-hmm. I still have somewhere in a box uh all the national geographic maps that that I received with my hard copy National Geographics for years and years and years and years mm. and I've made the migration to g p s for for driving around but just uh, give me a big old paper map and, and I'm just really having a great time.
0: Absolutely. I, you know, when I, um, so, so UGA law school, uh, had doesn't anymore, but had an, an Oxford, uh, semester abroad program and I was the faculty member there for a year and I was also the, the sort of program director of it for a little while. And there's this beautiful map of Oxford, a large paper map. Um, and I got my first copy before I went, I used it so frequently that it kind of fell apart. I got another one, which is sort of one of my few souvenirs of being mm. in Oxford, mm-hmm. and I love looking at it because I it's so it has such concrete memories for me, and it's so the map becomes a way to
2: access those experiences. So Maps, are, I think, are very sort and this of is and what you have produced are maps of cases. They they are not you know like a map of the law can never be literal because there's no such thing as a as a literal geography of the law, right. there are just many different geographies, and and it's and it tells you, you know, the whole point of the paper is it teaches you something, yeah. And the proof is kind of in the pudding when you look at it, and, sure. Um, but can I and in that co- sense, it's a leap of faith, right? Because yeah. you, you try,
0: you, I tried this new way of doing stuff, and it might not have worked out. But I think I think it has worked out. I'm continuing to do more of these things. Just on your point about maps being real or not real, I mean, it's true that a map of the law can't be. It, it's not. It, the law isn't a place uh, in in the sense that you know we're sitting in a house on a street in a town is a place, mm-hmm. um, but n- of course, no map. A map detailed enough to be the p- world would be the world.
2: See seneca New York. I mean, it's like it's. Oh, I would love to again. I'd watch that again and again and again.
0: It's a coming together for me of a few of a few different things. I, I think the the point, Christian, that you made earlier about the fact that you know you've got sort of a doctrinal way to think about cases and Mm -hmm. and what they mean. You've got a political science attitudinal model way to think about cases and what they mean. I'm not trying to displace either of those. I'm trying to complement those with an additional way to think about it. And so in that uh, wider sense, it connects to in a way... Things you and I have talked about so many times with with so many different people, and that is this sort of you know what what is decisional law? How does it work? What does it mean? What are the different ways to talk about it that help you understand it better? What is it as a process? And and I'm uh, becoming more and more sort of Dworkinian over time, and this is to me very much of a piece with
2: that. Well, I want to make the comment that I would that I would normally make it like 53 minutes into the show. <laughs> 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 this is the you know the the crux uh, maybe I don't know. So oh. so so Ma- Mike as a as a loyal argonaut you know uh, a, a long time listener to the show mm. um and second time caller. Mm. So um second time right? Third. That's Third. right. That's right. Wow
1: and i've got I'm something in the works so i'm going to i'm going to make a bid for uh, yet another one. Oh, oh awesome. Right.
2: So, in, in,
0: next week <laughs> yeah i mean you you truly are achieving guest host status <laughs> but
1: but
2: you you've heard um you've you've no, no doubt heard before as all loyal argonauts have um argonaut coined by a listener mm. i very much like we, we joe and i disagree on how to pronounce it but Fair you enough. know i'm correct about it um, <laughs> <laughs> that one way to see our show is as an extended journey into Joe's psyche, and it is really about helping Joe learn about himself over the long run. Like, that, that's, you know, this is, it's a little bit, like, I know that's, like, so a little horrifying. bit, it's a, it's a little bit like, like, series finale of St. Elsewhere or something like that, maybe in the end. Yes. I don't know if we'll end up doing that, but whatever. Yeah. Um. And so, that's a long way of saying, if you, if I kind of have a common thread of, like, what interests Joe about law, I hear him talking to other people, and, like, I think this, project is like so perfect for you, partly because you go back to your St. John's experience. Like I see you as someone who's fascinated by the relationship between author and reader. Mm. Right. And, Very uh, and, and I don't know how much of that predated St. John's and how much is after, but that you, you know, you are kind of big into rereading and reencountering a work and learning more about the author and, and seeing the author reader relationship is this kind of extended dynamic thing. Mm. Um, and, Law, of course, is a ongoing conversation among writers who are also readers, right? I mean, judges are writers and readers and uh, of these very odd kinds of writings which claim some kind of authority and people argue about what kind of authority they claim, right? But it is this, it's a separate genre of author-reader networks or something like that, right? Right. What I see is you're kind of bringing over that sensibility to law and asking you know, what is – I see you fa- in a way being fascinated by this connection between judges as authors and judges as readers. And oh, the, yes, the, right, yes. The, And the citation and co-citation networks is a, is a way of getting at, right, is a, without like putting individual judges on the couch and asking, you know, how they encounter right. things, right? It's just saying like um, when you cite something, you're citing it as a reader, Like hopefully like you've read the thing and you think this thing that you've read is relevant. You're bringing a prior work into the conversation. And so every case is like a conversation with a past and a message in a bottle to the future. Yes. It's expected to be read by others and part. So I I totally see this. Even though even when the others are their future selves. Right. Right. We're in a court where they're serving over time. Right. And the readers, of course, are, are also the litigants. They are right. the other judges on the panel. They're the uh, If it's the Supreme Court, I know this is about apex courts, but I think this extends to other kinds of writing. Like everything is about, you know, different writers, different audiences. And um, so I think it's a fascinating way because like I don't see you as like naturally someone who would be attracted to empirical legal studies just because, you know, you want to count stuff. I see you getting into this network citation as a way of visualizing that author-reader relationship and seeing it in a new way that is something other than purely doctrinal, where you could kind of import your own readership sensibilities and that can kind of distort the way you see, you know, I don't know.
0: Well, uh, that last thing, let me take the last thing first, which is I I had been feeling a certain frustration with the way that um, doctrinal analysis, as important as it can be, uh, can feel unhelpfully subjective um, right. in, in, a, in a sort of, well, I've got my story and you've got your story and it's great to share stories and it's great to think about stories. But when it comes to actually, you know, moving a mind from point A to point B, um, c- can those subjectively developed stories about doctrine, um, can they do that particularly effectively to someone who wasn't, for example, Quite well disposed to think of it that way in the first place, mm-hmm. uh, and so I was beginning. I was sort of getting frustrated with that, and maybe that was the dry ground on which this beautiful, cool rain fell. When I when I happened into it, um, when I started looking at network study uh, citation studies as a way to characterize judicial behavior in different doctrinal areas, when I I didn't know what that this was going to happen. What happened in these yeah. papers, but but when it did. I was like instantly
2: co- totally sucked into it. I, I I can see that. And and it, it, it made me feel like it opened my mind to a new way of saying things. Because, of course, my bias is like to read – Opinions, see citations, and basically skip over them as just <laughs> as just kind of like just like garbage italic stuff, which, mm. which is in there in order to bulk up some authority. But the the real argument is the stuff which is not contained in the citations, right? I mean, and, unless the argument just is, we have to follow this because of, and then it's an argument about precedent and bindingness, and then I want to see what that argument is. But so, I, you know, to me, it's just like visual garbage, or it had been, mm. um, and 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 that's you know that's one of the deficiencies in my own kind of education my own thought right is that i hadn't really thought about how much my reading of law could be enhanced by appreciating appreciating it as a conversation between writer and reader in a way that could be kind of where where the citations actually carry some meaningful signal um, where they become symbols right and and so that's like yeah, that's the sense in which i learned something and and what i would want to see in the book that this becomes in the end right is is an extended conversation um that you launch right about about that like that dynamic right and how this empirical study is a way of 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 putting meat on the bones of this theory that you have about about writers and readers i don't know that's that's what i wanted to read next
1: so christian i think that your sense of how you read cases and sort of skipping to the meat and skipping over the the connective tissue of the citations is is consistent, I think, with the way a lot of us uh, sort of apprentice in the law. It's consistent with the way most legal education, I think, has come to prime new lawyers, or law students to. You know, read the cases to derive the rule, and then use the rule to uh, sort of process a set of facts to somehow logically produce a certain outcome. And it it's only later in your career, whether you go going career as a practitioner or an academic or something else, that some of this nuance and context starts to starts to emerge. Um, but I I would take the that beginning point in a slightly different way because I think the way you've been characterizing it, Christian, is a sort of a dynamic conversation between past and present and future. So three parts. Um, but what strikes me is what what the what the project is capturing, and the visualizations are so compelling in particular in this sense, uh, is is that it's a bounded universe. Mm, that mm-hmm. that law it and I think the way this particular paper frames the analysis. There's a self-contained character to law. put a capital L there and scare quotation marks around it. right like Law is in effect the domain implicitly defined by the citation network and the citation practice, uh, in a way that the mapping of it, both literally and metaphorically gets at it. Right. So it's not just the mapping that is visual, but a map is defined in part by scale and in part by its edges. Right. So just pick up a paper map and you notice immediately what's not on the map because right. it's beyond the North, South, East, West, or top, bottom, left, right. Um, and, and so, here there's a really deep systematic exploration of law as a a more or less autonomous doctrinal system mm-hmm. right that yeah. you know so and you know the longer I've been a lawyer, the more I'm captured by the sense that there's this the interdependency of the formal uh analytic structures of the law, precedent and statute and interpretive techniques, and then the things that influence law that come from so-called outside legal institutions
2: it's it's interesting because it's bounded i hear you talking about it being bounded in a different way than and, and you know again my own approach had been maybe closer to holmes's approach so you read holmes path of the law and he discusses in there how we could you know this is disagreeing with the law is history basically that we could burn all of the old reporters and just keep the last couple of years and we would lose nothing right like the, that the, the the cases are just kind of applications of law and we can derive everything we need from kind of the most recent and and that's also a description of law as bounded, but as a kind of bounded system of of kind of rule guided decision making. But that's not the kind of boundedness that you're talking about, Mike, I think, or that Joe's talking about in the paper.
1: Well, that's the the naive sense that I think a lot of people start with. And- right. Uh, So, you know, we're recording this right at the beginning of a semester. I'm teaching a first year course, and I know from doing this and having done it in years past that that's the naive sense that new law students bring in. And that's what they want you to talk with them about when they're beginning to read about and learn about contracts or torts or the typical fall semester first year uh, subjects. They want. What are the rules? What's the current state of the law? How do you take that simple instrument and apply it to some novel set of facts? It it takes more acculturation in the in the in the practice to figure out that there's a lot more that could be going on.
0: And uh, you know, I, it's funny the 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 Holmes. Um, you know, if if you took Holmes to be commending a sort of burn all the reporters. Um, <laughs> Uh, sort of like burning the ships behind you after you've arrived yeah. uh, in a new land. Um, like, the it, it could be that uh, if if part of your goal is to make sure that people are trying to keep the meaningful principles foremost in their mind and actually think through them and think through how they're applying them and talk about them as, as actual important ideas, uh, although he is also famous for saying, you know, think things, not words, but... Um, but if you're trying to get people to say, "Look, this is this is what I'm doing, and here's why I'm doing it," and I don't I don't use case names to to capture those things. I talk about the principles themselves so that I don't get lost and and can start to say things that I don't even quite remember what I
2: mean or why I mean it. <laughs> and, and it's democratizing
0: it as is. well. All, right? I think yeah. that's all quite true, um, and and a powerful insight about you know some of the risks of you know, what I'm doing and saying, ah, you know, you look at this and then you'll know. Well, you'll know you'll know certain stuff in a certain way, right? Which is, again, back to my point about it's a compliment, it's not a substitute for mm-hmm. thinking about, you know, doctrine as a set of principles. The case names be damned, right? It's the, there are some ideas here and here's how they work and here's how they function and let's talk about that, right? Um, and even if there is no case... That's decided something similar to what I'm about to describe to you. Let's reason through the hypothetical using our principles, right? Like that's very powerful and important. And yet, there is this sense in which, again, uh, as I've I feel like I've changed a lot as a as a law teacher and as a as just someone who thinks about this stuff over the last twenty years. Um, you know, this stuff take, does take place in time and and so di- some things did happen before other things and some things haven't happened yet when you can when you can develop a sense for how to grasp things in time uh that gives you another way to know and understand and therefore uh employ these materials like i
2: think that's worthwhile too yeah i mean all of you ip people you know it, one of the classic cases is ins against ap right whether you Whatever you think of the case, whichever the opinions you think had the better end of the argument and whatever relevance it continues to have after Erie and everything, you know, there's all kinds of questions about about that case, right? But, But could you burn that case and think about intellectual property in the same way today? I mean, like all of you have read it, right? All IP practitioners have probably probably read that case. This is about the this is a hot news case. Where yeah, and, and many the,
0: and, and the, many yeah. property, uh, many people who who just took a one L property class and never took a, any IP classes at all. Many of those students have also encountered INS against AP because it's often taught in first year property courses. Right. Right. So there are a lot of lawyers who have encountered
2: that case who have nothing to do with IP. And I could recite kind of the bare principles from that case without any of the facts and without going into the dialogue between the judges. And I guess like, so part of the project, you know, it is about citation, but I get the sense that you believe, in, and, and from what Mike has said, that, that Mike believes that you just don't get the same practice without embodying those principles in a factual situation. In other words, it changes things to embody principles in a particular fact, factual setting and to have a particular set of opinions from the judges, in um, that case, like had it been more poorly written or um, or had less kind of interesting facts, the same principles, like maybe our IP law would be slightly different today, or at least we might think about it differently. I don't know. I mean, am I right about that? Is that the sense in which th- this conversation between authors and and readers matters? I mean, I, I agree. That's one of the –
0: that's definitely uh, part of the story for sure, um, that, that the
2: specific – that those specific things matter I don't want to put words in your in your mouth either though Mike I don't know if that's if that captures part of the naivete point that you're making but
1: I think it does although I you know it, it reminds me of, of something I was going to contribute earlier which is that sort of a next a next stage or a later stage in this project I'd like to see exploration of sort of the the, the symbolic or signification values that that Joe refers to in this paper, that is, if if new case X cites prior case Y, it, you know, so what's signified by that citation? What you know, are is the is it the embodiment? Is it there's there symbolic sort of signaling value? So if if a modern IP case were to cite INS versus AP. What, what is, what is going on there? So what's the meaning of that in the ongoing conversation, mm, the dynamics, mm-hmm. right? So when you say, what if you could, you know, if we burned INS versus AP, so let me interrupt you there, right? So what does that mean? Are we, are we burning the, the text <laughs> and the embodiment, but preserving the principle in that case, the fact pattern is likely as it has, has done, it will recur in some, in some respects. So the, 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 the debate in INS versus AP can't be burned, even if the particular details of that opinion might be. Uh, so, so there's there's a there's a very complicated sort of symbolic uh, conversation between authors and readers that's at work. And and I'd like to tease out, or I'd like the next version of this project, to see how that can be teased out in some respect.
0: Yeah, I I think that is. Um... That's a worthwhile a uh, goal and and part of the i think part of what I think of as you describe that as a goal is the way that th- this this fabric of of uh of case law that emerges when you do this sort of network mapping, looking at judges' citation practices uh and use that as the basis for creating your network um, that uh that part of and this, I guess, sort of swims against the the tide of Anglo American uh, uh, case law, in a way, right? Um, is it sort of anonymizes the individual judge mm-hmm. uh, and and the individual? So, so I don't the way I did these networks, just as a methodological matter, like I made no distinction between majorities and dissents. Because um, that's not what the project is trying to do. What the project is trying to do is say, for this case, what was the total conversation among the judges who wrote something about the case right. for the case? Like, what was the sum total of the tags they drew to the pr- to the past?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and so if Pitney in the majority in INS against AP cites a thing and Brandeis in the dissent in INS against AP cites a thing – um,
2: those are both in there right in my in my network map I, I, to me that make I mean it makes sense because you can imagine a case where a supreme Court case where the majority opinion is kind of very workmanlike and cites recent precedent in order to establish uh, some principle and reach a particular result and then the dissent cites Korematsu, right like it's it's highly relevant, I think, to understanding that case that Korematsu was cited, right? Because of the, that case, I mean, talk about like, you know, it it has emotive power, right? Not just kind of it just it doesn't just create kind of a rush of principles in one's head. It creates a rush of feeling, right? The, right. Uh, and, and one uh, one of the f- future projects I that's definitely sort of on
0: my little list, my to do list is is sort of a a, a network map of the anti canon. Mm-hmm. Um, and is certainly w- would be on anyone's list um, in, in that in that regard. Um, except but, for except for except for one person. <laughs> <laughs> but, <Yes>. the, <laughs> but the but um, the. The the sort of the, the fact that there's this sense in which this um and it's funny because I don't I'm not one who who buys into the sort of Langdell laws of science kind of stuff, yeah. generally speaking. But there are pieces of that, that I that make more sense to me now than they used to. Uh, in terms of this this fabric of the law and this web of th- that this web of citations produces, and it kind of anonymizes an individual judge and says, "Look, your job is this is Hercules in the chain novel, right? Mm-hmm. Your job is that, that story is as much about the chain novel as it is about Hercules, right? There's this thing into which you can weave the next thing that happens, um, and that uh, and that matters." Because it means there are some things that are open to you, and some things that are definitely not. You, as an individual judge, you, 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 of course, might do it this way or that way. But any judge who is is enculturated in this practice is going to do it roughly in this sort of way, right? That, and if they don't, we would say, well, that wasn't very good judging, was it? Right.
2: So the, I guess, I mean, we're in the midst of a confirmation battle right now, where it, what judges do is kind of the is occupying the agenda. Well, one of the things, I mean, there's a lot of nonsense, which is occupying the right. agenda, but um, like, you know, that is always, that has been the central struggle in nomination hearings for the past, however many of uh, my adult life and is what, what does a judge do? And there's this yeah. balls and strikes thing. And, everything a- else and so
0: it. I think one, like one way that I would describe, um, overruling a prior decision now in a way that I don't think I would have described it this way two or three years ago. Overrule, don't overrule, (laughs) because I don't track that in this network stuff. It doesn't matter how the case turned out, affirm or reverse. It doesn't matter what a majority dissent. None of that. I track none of that, right? What matters is how big a hole in the fabric are you pulling out before you start remaking it, In this new direction that you say you want to go in, which is which is in essence what overrulings do. Yeah, that's That's also of course what major
2: new cases do. That's kind of the way when I I use a little bit of Dworkin with beginning law students sometimes. not necessarily the whole normative theory, but but the idea of fit and justification. And, mm-hmm. and I, you know, sometimes I use the chain novel. I usually will mention that, but but I also use this metaphor of a puzzle, right, where you're kind of putting right. in new pieces and you have to appreciate the other pieces. And sometimes you, just the piece that you want to put in doesn't fit, and you have to pull out a bunch of pieces before you start rebuilding it, as right. you say. Right? So
0: let me just get two or three more random ideas that oh are on my mind, out in the uh, in the in, that are evo- that... The new pieces around which we will build more <laughs> more puzzles. <laughs> They've yeah. been very evocative for me privately they 're not in the paper but but someone who's reading the paper or looking at the images and just sort of some more random ideas so so when we were talking to Charles uh, Barzen about um, different common law models and uh, the whole list and the agonist and the whatever's uh, i don 't remember the particular terms he used, and I apologize for that um, but you know his his uh, reliance on james and and the notion that you know truth is like you add a new thing to the brain and it kind of jiggles everything in the brain. Right. And so so now you've got a new arrangement of all the stuff that's interconnected in this web of stuff in your brain. Mm-hmm. That's, to me, that's exactly what cases are. It's a new thing thrown into the existing s- stuff of cases. So like this is also about w- how you might think about the truth of
2: the law is this stuff in a way. Is that how you encountered reading new works when you were an undergraduate? Like you would add a new... Thing and suddenly it has to rejigger everything that came before. I mean, yeah,
0: I, I think that you, when you read enough things that are talking about enough overlapping subject matter, um, I, I do think that's a natural way yeah. to describe what that experience is like. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, what's funny is T.S. Eliot in some of his literary criticism talks about the poet's role, uh, the the uh, in much the same way. Uh, Mm -hmm. about this sort of your there's this thing that you are walking up to and participating in and the more i can recognize you as an individual and what you're doing the worse you're doing it (laughs) that when when i when i don't see you when i see instead the poetry itself that you're sort of channeling and and again that to me there's a sort of resonance there last thing i'll sort of throw into the into the bizarro ideas mix um is to me the the sort of the the muses of of ancient Greek mythology, sort of weaving the world, and Penelope in the in the Odyssey, sort of unweaving and weaving every night to to uh, deceive the suitors who are occupying her home. Uh, it's again. This is so the, the sort of weaving and unweaving and reweaving is to me super compelling as a way to think about the activity of of discourse among authors and readers over time. Hmm. And I can't, and now I can't see why, like any other way. So to me statutes are statutes don't really mean anything in, until people start writing cases about them. Because that's when you do this stuff, right? That's when you connect it to other things you've already said and thought about and how you make sure it's there for the future for people to reach back to and write and think about some more kind of crazy
1: so so i don't think it's crazy at all so that maybe that's why i I enjoy this project so much because (laughs) you've just described basically the entire contents of my brain (laughs) Um, but but what so what's interesting to push on that a a little bit farther and and apologies for not being able to to keep up with the homeric uh references but you know you've got multiple disciplines multiple practices operating at the same time right so you've got there's sort of the the you know, if you characterize a statute as a practice, because it, it only makes sense in terms of the evolving weaving of, of uh, you know, interpretation and statutory, uh, writing and then judicial interpretation, and it's all part of a fabric there, there's sort of a set of sort of recognizable moves in that practice that define the participants and the content of what they do as part of a whole. But then there's also So that practice, which exists within what we recognize as the legally given, uh, sort of domains or disciplines, right? So this, this is reminding me of what you said earlier about Langdell, uh, right. So there's sort of a contracts mosaic and, and, or fabric, and then there's a, a recognizable torts fabric or mosaic. And that's not, you know, there's sort of a layered or or interdependency relationship between, the subject matter domains as we currently conceive of them yep. and the background professional domain of, you know, we are all lawyers, so we all participate in this shared practice. And they, and they really do
0: cluster too. That's another great thing about, about this technique uh, for me is that uh, it, it allows the clusters to sort of emerge themselves from the judge's actual behaviors of, of doing these citations, that, that things do cluster um and it in uh, there are some nodes in the network that are more richly interconnected with each other than they are with other groups of nodes that are similarly interconnected so there's a there is a clustering of of dense connection and 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 uh less dense connection um and that of course changes over time another thing that's powerful about this method is that it allows you to take snapshots at different times so uh, yeah. which the second data set in the paper does um it takes a it takes a 47 to 2018 and does a snapshot halfway through as well. So you can go 47 to 82 and then 82 to 2018 and see how things changed from 82 to 2018. Um, And so the, this technique allows you to kind of see change occur, including change in the clustering of concepts that are, you know, that we now think of as being closely related,
2: although earlier that people might not have thought of them as particularly closely related. So do you see this, your model, here of um, of the judge as consistent with Dworkin. I mean, I, I'm just wondering how, like, do you, whether you see this as an elaboration of a of a Dworkinian way of looking at what judges do, which is to be kind of deep readers of a society and its legal materials, and then to tell their own story that kind of harmonizes these things. in a in, you know, we can use language as justification if you like, but. It, or, or do you see this as like not dependent on that? I mean, everything you've said it, and everything you've written here, I mean, if I look at it, maybe because I know you, it does seem like you have a very Dworkinian way of looking at things, even if you don't necessarily see law as a seamless web and you don't believe yeah. in the right answers thesis. But it, I don't know. Is the project dependent on a Dworkinian way of looking at what judges do it's or, not does, a, it, or no, does it capture not a, that? Or it's not it... a strong claim about what they are subjectively thinking about
0: what they're doing. Um, uh, it is, uh, but but it is an observable thing that opinions read this way, uh, which is to say they include
2: these links to the past. Yeah, and, and that's, that's can... the sense in which I'm wondering if it's a, a hidden premise of the of the study. Like, one would engage this enterprise of looking at co-citation and looking at citation patterns if one thought judges were taking in legal data and trying to weave them into a compelling story. Now, right? That that would be one reason why. Looking at it this way, doing it, this kind of empirical study, right, rather than looking at the judge's particular psychological foibles or other, like, the, I yeah. Don't know. So, so yeah. yes. Put that way, I don't hidden premise.
0: Uh, put that way, it is it is evidence that makes the Dworkin approach m- seem, I think, m- more plausible um, mm-hmm. as, as a as a description of how things are working. Uh, it's evidence that is that is quite consistent with that being with what Dworkin's. Uh, what what Dworkin said being so. Uh, now there there you know plenty of other people have said plenty of other things that that uh, that aren't particularly Dworkinian or or are frankly anti Dworkinian. It might be evidence for some of those as well. I, I don't know. Yeah, but. this is why I'm waiting on the book, if you can tell. <laughs> but I but I do I I think I mean I think there's a lot that Dworkin says that it, about Hercules and the sort of the project of of moral justification. That I think is – that I do think is a little bit harder to understand and discern. I think it certainly would fit
2: mm-hmm. um, that this is – But, but that, that part may not be a necessary view. But like this, this kind of judicial methodology seems to me to be so tightly bound to – you know you, you one can do the project no matter if even if you think judges are basically you know umpires balls and strikes and all that like you know whatever yeah. you think like the project still works i mean you can still do this thing right but right. it seems to me the depth of the project is in understanding a certain kind of judicial mind right about like authentically reading and having space to kind of decide and weaving a story yes right i mean i think that's integral to to the project in its best light
0: uh, I yes i agree and uh of course, because we're, we're focusing so much, because the project focuses so much, and, and therefore, conversationally, we are focusing so much on, on what judges are doing uh, in a case law process, you know, some what I said a few minutes ago is, uh, is obviously totally uh, bunk and wrong, um, in, <laughs> right? So, for example, statutes, um, you know, a lot of compliance with what statutes command never hits a courtroom. Uh, because the statute, maybe it directs a particular official to act in a certain way, and maybe members of the public interact with those officials in a non-exceptional way. And so, you know, it, does it ever see the inside of a courtroom? Is it ever the subject of this kind of searching inquiry? Not at all, not remotely, right? And is, does that mean it's not law? Of course, that's not what it means. So I get that, right? I'm I'm focusing on the part of law that is, ju- de- that is decisional law. And in our system, that's a big chunk of what Certainly what legal education is about and what people think of as sort of in today's world, sort of what's the value add? It's in this area of conceptual elaboration and recombination and um, and understanding, I think. Hmm. Mike, what do do you have anything to add?
1: Well, I, yeah, just I mean, the problem is, I have so many thoughts swimming yeah. through the back of my mind. Hey, hey, Mike, I want, this, I want it, to
2: hear just, them all. That's why. So that's why
1: <laughs> uh, well, see if I can sort of pro- or organize them in some coherent way. Um, so I, I guess I want to uh, sort of push open the door a little bit on the idea that uh, the judge and the model of the judge as decision maker. Uh, is the is necessarily the right unit of analysis here mm, mm. that it seems to me in part that there's a very interesting uh, sort of set of questions about courts as institutions and about the judiciary as an institution and and sort of institutional evolution the the authoritative character of courts as you know, interpreters uh enunciators uh, resolvers of legal questions. Um, and, you know, this is a question that sort of requires, I think, later diving into the distinction between how the Supreme court behaves in our system relative to other apex courts in, in state court systems, uh, you know, intermediate appellate courts, uh, that are issuing, uh, opinions and how they, uh, occupy, uh, roles institutionally in, um, in their respective systems. Um, so in other words, I wonder if it's wise to try to look beyond this data set and say, so what's the implicit model of judicial decision making? And mm-hmm. instead, maybe we should be thinking about what are we learning about the roles and functions and character of courts? That's that's super interesting, because as you were saying that, I was
2: thinking, huh, I wonder if you could um, uh, you could do a study like this and find that in this area or this kind of court tends to cite to, – to center its citations on super cases. And there are other courts which are much more um, – uh, seem to, to write as though they were much more widely read. And what would that tell you about the culture of the court uh, mm. if it only cites you know a handful of super cases – uh, or very or it's very um i guess parsimonious may be the right word with what it cites, right you know um right. a, versus one which kind of sprinkles citations everywhere um those would be those would be some evidence of a very different culture,
1: yeah, so let me give you a, a, an anecdotal hypoth- a hypothesis about uh about the world that is uh, based on anecdotal observation, and there's probably nothing to it beyond further anecdotal exploration. But the the anecdotal hypothesis is that if you were to go to the Supreme Court, go to go to chambers, uh, where I've never been, I didn't clerk at all, let alone didn't clerk on the Supreme Court, uh, so so you guys would have better insight. But my bet is that if you go to chambers of the individual justices, on the shelves, uh, you would find the US reports. Uh, you would not find uh, the FSUP, you would be unlikely to find uh, the appellate reports and you would not find any reporters from state court systems. Uh, If you go to chambers in a court of appeals, you are going to find the reports of uh, the US reporter and you'll find uh, the, you know, the F second and F third, and now the fourth, especially, but you're not going to find district court opinions on the shelves, right? So there, there's a sort of a self-contained epistemological universe that might be visible in, in what literally surrounds the decision makers in these institutions. Yeah, and I, th- I think your intuition is correct. I didn't clerk at
0: the Supreme Court either, but I share your intuition. What you said is certainly true of the court of appeals at which I did clerk, um, and every chambers in it that I was ever in, uh, and it's you know which is cause and which is effect in the sense that um, the the citation studies that are out there, and there are some, although not not that engaged in network analysis of this sort. But um, you know, John Henry Merriman was that his name? Oh, the guy at Stanford. Um, yep. he, did, uh, he, he did some of the first studies of this sort uh, of citation analysis uh, in uh, apex courts, and his subject was the California Supreme Court mm-hmm. at different periods and over different uh, spans of time. Um, and what he found in what uh, the, this handful of citation studies that do exist, um, what, what they have all found is that um, that apex courts tend most often to cite their own output. And therefore, they're developing that body of stuff of their own on which they are elaborating. And and this paper does focus on an apex court. It's the Supreme Court of the United States, but it's far from the only apex court. You know, Albert Yoon um, uh, recently uh, had a paper in the uh, Journal of Empirical Legal Studies with a colleague of his where they were looking at the citation practices of the Supreme Court of India. Mm. And um, it follows much the same pattern uh so it's it's a you know it's, no, it now that
2: is in the anglo-american it's not at all surprising though right i mean you're going to cite you would expect in general that a court will cite authorities in, in a system in which there is hierarchical authority yeah. and and where precedent matters in other words what has been written before matters right. the authoritative stuff written before matters most and therefore yeah um whereas the federal um courts of appeals you would expect to i, I guess they cite themselves but the reason they cite themselves is because they usually cite themselves implementing a Supreme Court rule to the extent that there is one. I Maybe, mean, that'd be interesting to think about. I don't. I mean, I have to back off a little bit. For yeah, that,
0: I think. But. I think you know, the, w- within a court of appeals, I think there is a a there is an apexicity to its pri- their prior decisions. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, their panel opinions
2: are p- the panels are bound by prior panel opinions, right? As well as by the Supreme Court. So generally, I mean, there is an interesting there are interesting wrinkles there. But certainly by uh, by en banc decisions and and, yes. and in many in most circuits it's by other panels
0: and yeah. in the absence of an intervening Supreme Court opinion which gives you a reason to think that a prior panel opinion was incorrect in some important way I think yeah. the the basically they would feel bound by it was certainly true in the Federal Circuit yeah but, but um, I think the relationship between an intermediate appellate court and its uh and its superior uh apex court does mean there is at least in the cases where they're talking about those Supreme Court things that they have to apply, right? Um, they don't have that degree of freedom that the apex court itself has. I mean, that's part of being an apex court is that you can when you want to overrule your prior cases. It's
2: int- Yeah, it's interesting, though, the, the I would like to see a, a study of like state court decisions that are applying state constitutional rules that mirror federal constitutional rules. And how often even though they're deciding a state issue, they cite federal court they, they cite Supreme Court precedent, mm-hmm. you know, like on the state takings issue, they'll tend to cite the the right. Supreme Court canon on takings cases. So this is where they don't have to, but they tend to um, cite. So when you'd have to do an analysis of when there is the freedom to cite their own stuff. Right. To what extent do they cite the Supreme Court stuff? And, I, and the reason to cite the U.S. Supreme Court, a reason to do that would be because you're deciding a federal issue at the same time and you are bound by the federal rules. But, you know, you could always have a state rule which – either grants greater rights or or lesser, or, yeah, which would give you some freedom to cite your own stuff. But they don't, um, even though they are apex in one sense, but not in another.
0: Yeah. And I've studied state Supreme Courts, v- basically not at all systematically. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I would I, I, sort of another thing way down on the to do list is I, I would love to look at uh, and this is a somewhat different concept than you just laid out. The I'd like to look at state Supreme Courts in areas where federal law has a very, very small footprint mm-hmm. um, so that uh, you would know that they were in an area where they had the most flexibility to do what they wanted to like do. Like family law? Or... Uh, well, yes, that would be a great one. Um, uh, the one I'm thinking of is is uh, corporation law because that's the class I'm teaching right now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, looking at the Delaware Supreme Court. Right and how, what of what is the fabric of its output?
2: Where it especially? probably subjectively feels and is objectively correct that the chances of a an appeal to the Supreme Court on some ground is basically nil. Yes, the U.S. Supreme Court is basically a- and nil, yeah.
0: when and in Delaware corporate law in particular, where, where they know the eyes of the nation are very much on them. With respect to right. these issues so it's so it's it really is an interesting analog to the u s Supreme Court in an area where federal law has i mean theres there is sarbanes oxley there is dodd frank so there are some changes to corporate law and the SEC 's role in that that are different than they were twenty years ago yeah. but but nevertheless there's this
2: you know that 's an interesting one because the delaware court's sense of uh, audience is not a typical state Supreme Court sense of audience when writing on state grounds, right? Because it is writing for a national audience.
0: Yeah, a national audience and and a very sophisticated national audience. So lawyers who are paid a lot of money to be really good at their job uh, uh, in this corporate law context. So, Mm -hmm. um, and I think also it'd be interesting to, I I have a sense that if there were any non-Apex court that behaved like an Apex court, it would be the Delaware Chancery Court, which is the trial court that, that here's these very same corporate law cases, mm-hmm. so I'd be fascinated. I, at some point, I really do hope I can do this uh, empirical work on these two courts in Delaware. I think it'd be really interesting.
1: Or, or Joe, you could pick the federal circuit for patent law, at least up until the last two or three years when the Supreme Court took such an interest.
0: Yeah. I mean, the 82 to 94 period would be the most interesting there because in 94 is when the, when the Supreme Court really starts to say, wait a minute, <laughs> what's what's going on here? Uh, so that twelve-year period, it would be kind of interesting. O- although, yeah, I'm not a, a the IP is uh, it's it's lost virtually all of its novelty for me, and I'm I'm driven in part by
2: an apathy. Fascinating. For novelty. I feel like I've won this debate about whether patent law should exist, and that's what's going on here. Because of course, if Joe, if you were to do that study, I would I would expect an introduction which at least defends the existence of patent law before I'm going to read further.
0: Yeah, which is why I need to have a co-author. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, so although tells me, Joe, that, that, that to to you, we should start presenting your work at at. Conferences with patent lawyers to definitively extinguish the sense of exceptionalism that <laughs> 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 <So> dominates <dumb>, <laughs> patent practice. Let, let me let me add because uh, Christian asked about other thoughts I had. Let me add one more thing. I think that that's sort of in my mind as we're talking through the you know what this research would look like if you took different cases, different you know, state courts versus Supreme Court and different subject matter areas. Which is uh, we've been talking about judges and courts uh, implicitly having essentially complete autonomy with respect to what they cite or don't cite subject to rules of the court. That is hierarchy, uh, uh, in terms of the the materials they cite. But in many courts, they're going, there's going to be a reciprocal relationship between what the courts rely on in terms of citation and what the lawyers who are practicing in that case are relying on as precedent and advocating so that uh, yeah, in a lot of courts, the Supreme Court uh, may not be subject to this constraint to the same degree, but a lot of other courts obviously have resource constraints, so they can't simply do an independent dive into the history of whatever legal issue is being presented. They will borrow significantly from the briefs. The briefs, of course, will rely heavily on what the lawyers expect is appropriate for the the relevant court to be relying on, which just means that there's this iterative relationship between expectation and payoff. But it would be interesting to, you know, particularly Supreme Court, you could do this because the briefs are accessible to, to create a data set that takes the work that you've already done and then backs it up a level in terms of what the briefing provided and what's the relationship between the way the lawyers framed the presidential network and the way the court actually expressed the presidential network in the opinion.
0: I agree. It would be very interesting. And there there was, uh, I do recall reading a, a, as part of one study. Um, and it's a study that I think I do cite in this paper, although not for this discussion. Um, there was, there is one paper where someone looked at um, uh, the author looked at Uh, here's the sort of the stack of things cited in this group of Supreme Court cases, and here's how many of them were cited in the briefs. And here's how many weren't cited in the briefs. And my recollection is the mix was basically 70-30. Like Mm -hmm. about 70% of the things the court was, uh, cases that the court was citing were cases cited in the briefs to them, but about 30% weren't. And, And sort of like, is it, you know, seven tenths full or three tenths empty or whatever, but the, the, um, you know, so I think your, your, your basic intuition that, that a lot of this is going to be based on what the lawyers bring forward. Of course, what the lawyers are bringing forward is what prior judges put, made available to them. So or, the, or
1: what you, what you've been, what you've been trained as a lawyer to argue. So, so what I mean by indeed, that is, yeah. right. What we you know when I got out of law school, I go into private practice. I'm in California, so. Uh, I'm trained in sort of California practice and expectations and the senior lawyers who are training me and mentoring me as an appellate, as as a litigator at every level are saying, you know, this is the style of citation. These are the types of precedents that are going to be persuasive Hmm. in California courts for state court practice or in California based federal courts. That's just so there's a kind of back to my point earlier about the sort of the character of the practice uh, so what's a recognizable move for lawyers in that particular context? Um, it comes down from what you interpret from just reading the, the cases and the opinions and how you're trained as a student and so forth, but it is also an ongoing acculturation based on whatever practice sitting you're in.
0: Yeah. And the, and it's, and it's not just the judges who are, who are building this discursive practice. They're also you know, the, the lawyers who are part of it, uh, the clerks uh, who work for the judges are part of it, um, the way that law school materials reinforce the things that are being done by those participants in the process over time. I mean, it's it, the, a, a discursive practice this complex and thick and, and socially meaningful has to involve a ton of people over a long period of time engaging in a lot of behavior, it seems to me.
2: I have a question on that because I, as you guys were talking, I was thinking about, you know, Joe, And speaking of Albert, you and I went to a talk that he gave recently when he was here and it had to do with had to do with AI and, and the way that um, computers these days can be used to um, generate legal arguments and at least as a, as a pointer about which way to go and give you some sure. probability of success um, with various cases. And one of my concerns there, and I thought about it too reading your paper, um, was you know, what happens when the participants in the discourse start to take advantage of these tools? So, you know, with his, it's, it's uh, you know, you're predicting the success, of the, but if everybody's using these tools which predict success, and they'll have a different idea of what's successful, and that changes the you know, so it's almost like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy if it's, if it's widely enough adopted, and, and there's a normative question about whether that's desirable. And here, to the extent we're, we're kind of using these, these tools to, to take a, uh, an overview of the discourse, if everybody sees that map like, doesn't that change the discourse? And the question is, does it do that in a compelling way? Because you and I talked about, like, one possible application of this, of course, is if if you're trying to generate the list of cases you should read to get ready for some kind of argument or to write a brief, like, you know, I can imagine a tool like this where you would put in a few cases you know were important and maybe a few issues, and boom, it generates one of these trees, and you, you know, you can generate kind of a personalized textbook for becoming an expert in a little area. Yep. Um, if everybody does that, then it changes the conversation, right? I mean, this relationship, again, I, I don't want to keep going back to it necessarily, but this relationship between writers and readers and as you guys were just talking, the the participants, the many participants in this thick practice who've been enculturated in these different ways, yeah. whether it's training to practice in California or elsewhere, um, you know, there's a way that that's happened. It's resulted in this map. But now if everybody starts looking at maps like these, what you know, how does that change the nature of this writer reader relationship and the the practice of law
0: and it's of course it's hard to know but the the uh, I mean uh, one thing I think it would do one one prediction I feel fairly confident in which um, and of course accuracy and and confidence are not correlated at all Um, look it up folks (laughs) Um, the one one prediction I'm confident in is that uh, that it would slow down the pace of change like these these networks change and they change because there's always a new case tomorrow, and that case will cite stuff and and th- and therefore make connections. So some things will get reinforced, and some things won't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these networks um, change over time. I think that change would slow way down if everyone who's engaged in the practice is thinking a lot about how is what I'm about to do going to
2: affect the network. Yeah, this well, it relates to something I wrote a long time ago when I first started in the legal academy. I mean. Could it be the case that law works well because there's stuff that we don't know? Like, you know, is, is ignorance of the map a is that a good thing or bad thing? It's not obvious to me, for, ex- for example, using these AI tools to predict the outcome of cases. Like, right. are we better off to the extent that you think that law is about achieving social settlement rather than warfare, <laughs> right? So it's about like achieving a, a, acceptable results. People feeling like they had a fair shake, you know, it's a settlement value, right? Um, like is and and you could I, I understand you know there are obvious arguments you can make about how if everybody could predict there be people would need to resort to courts less than they do and so that it may enhance that social value but I'm just you know abstractly here it's not obvious to me that more knowledge about these things is actually good
0: it's a totally fair point and I and I think that uh, if the if if part of what makes law as a way to s- to settle matters and a way for people to peacefully reach a way to move forward with each other. Um, uh, if part of what makes it function in that way is that there are people actually taking a fresh look at what they're actually being asked to look at, yeah. then the fact that you're looking over at an algorithm, are, people are going to be like, what are you doing over there? Yeah, That's, like the perception
2: uh, of uncertainties may be very important in that process yeah, for I'm reasons I, we can't understand.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm actually, I'm, I'm asking you to encounter the real human thing I'm bringing to you. And when it's only when I see you do that that I'm going to feel like this thing was a thing that can bring me a, a sense of, it's okay to move forward even if I don't get everything I want. Yeah. Right? Um, and I think you know, Frank Pasquale has a paper this spring that's about this sort of automated law versus human law yeah. that's a very important... is talking about th- these things from, from uh, sort of the stuff we that you're mentioning. We should get Frank back on to talk about that.
2: Yeah. Um, the very important stuff. Well, Mike, you've written a lot about knowledge um, as relates, you know, have a, f- a few papers on knowledge uh, or as IP regulations, yeah. basically knowledge regulation. What do you think about this? Is knowledge well, is a good or not? Yeah.
1: So as you... I guess I, the, re- the reflection that I, I have given what you've introduced is not so much on the, the, the knowledge as knowledge, uh, or knowledge as good aspect of it. I'm, I'm thinking of James Scott and the, the, the arguments that he makes in political science and anthropology about legibility. And, and I don't know if you're familiar with his book, seeing like a state and, and later things, which is the, the point is that, um, if you, when you build in, uh, you know, mechanisms, technological mechanisms or regulatory mechanisms, to to make uh, social processes sort of transparent and clear and articulated, uh, you know, internally within that social system that has one set of costs and benefits, uh, so that a certain degree of obscurity of the craft might actually help bind the group together and make it, uh, more effective as a self-governing entity. Yeah. But it, what it also does is it creates opportunity from the outside of the group for, uh, rent extraction or surveillance or monitoring <laughs> in a way that's, uh, you can imagine quite troubling both in the, uh, you know, Scott's work was based on, um, Fieldwork in Southeast Asia initially, but you can see how it could be extrapolated and repurposed to uh, an environment like this. Uh, so in other words, if you have your know, bike by, by and this is where the visualization aspect of, of this current project is potentially so compelling, but also uh, creates this very interesting second order, um, question, right? You've really exposed in a very literal way the pathways and nodes by which the mechanisms of the law are evolving over time. Um, you know, so I, I have no way, I, this is very speculative to say, you know, is there somebody out there or some interests out there that could take that and use that technique or that information for, uh, for harmful purposes rather than for or purposes of understanding. Yeah, I mean, that's just the
2: the kind of the availability of code is opportunity for exploit idea. Mm, you know, right. I, I was thinking of like a family where, you know, if, if all the rules of the family were like explicitly laid down, there would be some value in that you would know, you know, kids would know this, uh, parents would know that, and we would know how things would work under various circumstances. But there's some security in being in a family of knowing that, Although there are like some rules are explicit and some are kind of internalized and hard, to, couldn't be articulated easily. And then there's just a whole zone of things where you just know that the family is going to work together to deal with situations as they arise. And you feel some security in the fact that that will be done in a way which looks out for everyone's interests, right? Um, even though you can't necessarily, you know, no right. one could have predicted in advance that, that, at, that they and would And at the level needed.
0: of social complexity of a legal system, this is, I think, what Henry Smith would say is, is sort of the core role of equity, mm-hmm. that it's equity is an anti-opportunism mechanism. Anytime you have a set of rules... There is opportunism. Uh, po- there's exploit, a possibility yeah, of yeah, opportunism, yeah, 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 right? Yeah, yeah. Um that, that there can a situation can arise where someone who's got a little better grasp on the rules and the way they can work um based on the information that's now suddenly become available, say, ah, there's a chance I can get a thing over on the
2: and then equity comes in and but says But that's true even without a malevolent actor, right? That that at least, at least in the family circumstance, even with with no malevolent person exploiting the rules like there's some security in knowing that we're that that we have a certain normative project together yeah and and then the argument is the thinner that normative project the the greater the 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 greater the role for clarity and maybe restricting equity to kind of anti-exploit right but um but but i'm not so sure about that i'm not sure that our that our like um as opposed to a family are kind of geographically bound um legal culture in the United States is quite as thin as that. I think there is some, and and I don't know that it it takes,
0: I don't know that it's so much malevolence as, as, I mean, obviously there could be malevolent actors, but, but merely the, the, uh, the natural human tendency to see things in the way that, that, work out the best for you. I mean the arguments oh, yeah. that happen to favor the thing you would like tend to be the most persuasive. <laughs> and that isn't malevolence. That's just you're you're most familiar with the stuff that as it makes sense to you. And so you when you say well look, I think this is what the rules require. Um, and it, yes, it is the thing that happens to favor me. Fair enough. But it's, I just, but see, this is how the rules work. And, and the other person could say, well, actually another way to read those same rules is this, ah, now we have a complicated question and there's a role for something like an equity anti-opportunism principle to come in and say, there's a, the the rules only get you so far that trust and reasonableness within an overarching set of norms has to be part of the conversation. Right. The family's sort of project as a family. Right. Um, ha- has to take over
2: uh at a certain point. Um because it's the point of all of this. Yeah. Wow. So hmm I you got a lot more to write, Joe. I mean, there's a lot more to <laughs> I, 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 I don't know even uh, why are you sitting here? These, <laughs> these are great questions. Why aren't these are you all at home great typing? questions.
1: <laughs> Um, but I'm sitting here and I'm just remembering your reference at the outset to Saint elsewhere. And I'm just imagining that I've got a snow globe <laughs> in my hand and uh, don't
0: look down, <laughs> so Mike, talk- don't look down
1: <laughs> <laughs> the dated reference for, for people. But, um, I guess the last thing I would, I would just offer and I, I don't know how much you want to get into it, but this is, I, I think it's really important to note that this is a really amazing descriptive project mm-hmm. and there's a lot of obvious sort of normative directions that it could go um doesn't have to go, but it could but uh, but on its own terms, it's really obviously and explicitly descriptive and and I think it's important to note that because it's very clearly situated within the domain of legal scholarship, bringing in tools and techniques and methods from a lot of other places, but it's very clearly focused on law as law and the authoritative character of law um and so by making a very explicitly descriptive claim about law it's very clearly uh resisting to some extent the standard of so of student edited law journal legal scholarship which is expected to be normative
0: mhm mm. quite true <laughs> yeah uh, on all counts um and you know there there's more empirical legal work than now than there has been at, at very important points in the past. Um, and I think some, so, so the descriptive things that are descriptive and genuinely, uh, informative, um, that really do develop new information about legal systems. Um, I think people have a better appreciation for it now than they did, uh, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. Um, and, and students would certainly be included in that, um, to a degree. Uh, based on what they're seeing in their first year courses and that kind of stuff. Uh, But yeah, I think there's, that's another thing that, as I said in the beginning, where I was sort of getting a little frustrated with scholarship in the traditional doctrinal mode, which includes that sort of normative, like, here's my story Mm -hmm. about how this should be. Well, you know, at a certain, there's a certain part of, my mind at least that sometimes goes well you know how nice for you um well, <laughs> well, we, you're not a judge what the hell difference does that make um and and that's not a great i'm not proud that that's a part of my brain but it's there uh and you know some of the some of the most fun and interesting and engaging conversations we've had have been about I think very valuable normative projects. Yeah. Uh, so part of my frustration was a was a was a byproduct of my own limitations. Like there's some normative things that I'm not good enough to do. Like I don't have, think deeply enough. So so in part I'm like, well, it's yeah. Everybody listens.
2: Everybody listens to this show knows that just, just <laughs> Joe's such a shallow thinker. You, you look at
0: you look under the. Sometimes you look for your your keys under the lamp because it's like that's where the light is. All right. This is I can do
1: this. But but wait, wait a minute, Joe. I think you're selling yourself short, right? You think so,
2: Mike? You think so? Just,
1: just, just, just a <laughs> tiny bit. Right? Most, not only Joe think, but it's not just Joe selling himself short, but I think sort of selling short the 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 merit and the social value of just descriptive, observational, carefully done research. Right, I, so so I mean, I don't buy an implied hierarchy that says truly deep thinkers do normative work, and people who can't keep up, well, they, at least they can do descriptive work. I think that's misleading. Well,
0: that's right. a, that's a, that's a, I totally take the point. Um, I, I I think normative. I, I didn't mean to hierarchicalize them so much as to say um, in the scheme of things that are and are not valued at different points in time in legal scholarship. Um, the 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 and I'll I'll take a, the depth metaphor out of it right and just say there's some minds that that take better to some efforts and and the 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 normative stuff that w- would be more appealing or fashionable maybe I
2: I haven't done as well at I don't know but 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 it doesn't matter um, you know because, the only thing I've ever asked myself when writing a uh, when thinking about when writing a piece right is like is um you know it, it every every it's always been like i need i want to understand this exactly. better exactly i want to understand this better and sometimes understanding a thing better means that you develop an that understanding you see it in a new way and sometimes that seeing it in a new way has implications which suggests that someone's gotten something wrong somewhere either a judge or another scholar or something else and then you can say well this should be otherwise and that's the normative point right but that's whether that that direct implication for what someone has said is there to me is is ancillary to the project of creating new kinds of knowledge about law. Um, and not every piece needs to have that direct connection to a thing that should be otherwise. I mean, we, we're building this large edifice together, and it's right. perfectly okay if, you know, I think the criterion is, does this help me understand our legal culture better, right, for legal scholarship at least? Yeah. And that doesn't always involve... This case should come out differently, or this statute should be otherwise. I mean, it can, but that seems to me again. I mean, you know, I'm sympathetic to the idea that, like, you, one of the problems with legal scholarship is it's always possible to say something if you want to, right? And so, (laughs) so having it cash out to a real outcome, grounding it in some, some thing that would be different in the world, is a way of kind of providing some some kind of substitute for falsifiability. Like it's not actual falsifiability, of course, right. but it's a substitute for it. And, right. But I don't think it's the only one. Um, I, I I hardly think it's the only one. And, and I've never approached my own scholarship that way. And I don't – I see this project as as similar to, to the attitude that – as taking the attitude that I usually do, which is like, you know, you have this desire to understand the legal culture of judges and lawyers better. And here's a window mm-hmm. into a way of seeing that world that – you found illuminating, right? Yes. And and that you and that you believe has some promise for further illumination. And to me, that's valuable, uh, very valuable. And so I wouldn't like I've I've always resisted that normative slash descriptive um, when it comes to scholarship that that dichotomy because it, to me the line is not nearly as clear um, as many people seem to think it is. Certainly, student notes. My goodness, right? Student notes. It's like description normative right, right. normative is like two or three pages tacked onto the end typically um, uh, in
0: some so i i think i think that w- w- what you said about wanting to understand something better and i i that is very much how i feel about what it has been like to do this work and and continuing to to work on these sorts of exp- uh, efforts uh with these tools which i will continue to do um I've enjoyed it a lot and I've enjoyed it in part because I've been experiencing it in just the way that you describe. I think it is also true. And again, I'm not, I don't I'm not trying to be confessional or t- unnecessarily oh, here, autobiographical. See, well, but, but That
2: is the whole point of this whole series of podcasts. So. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but I, I have felt about some things I tried to do at other times earlier, um, where the, there's a, there's this, there's a, there's another thing that, that can occur to me, um, and maybe it does relate to the Saint John's College experience, where I've I've also felt at times about projects I was working on is like, am I able to um, am I able to say how this is how how I'm sort of pulling my scholarly weight or not? Like, am I re is this really on the up and up in that sense? Am I making a responsible contribution in, in a way that I could justify? Right, and that's a I think that is ultimately. When that's in the front of your mind, that is, <laughs> I've experienced that as
2: not great. That's, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, that's, not that's a helpful. questioning of motivation. If you if you believe like I do that the character of a work is is determined in large part by its motivation, like you know a bad motivation rarely results in interesting work. Like if your only motivation is I need to, I need to write something so that um, yeah you know to, to satisfy a check mark or to inha- or enhance my brand or something like that, then you know. It, it, it may be that it's valuable to people but that's you know but a a a solid motivation of like you you authentically want to find out why something is the case or whether something is the case or you want to like Coming to one to to know one's own mind through exploration, you know, at least like you can't say it'll be valuable for everybody. But if it is really valuable for you and it represents a valuable journey for you, the chances are other people will find it really meaningful. And I think it's the only way to achieve that kind of deeper meaning Agreed. in practice. And this project certainly fits the bill that way for me. Yeah,
1: and I'd add only that in some cases uh, an explicit motivation of that character is almost unnecessary because the project and the question of the work it's almost involuntary uh it goes back to what we were talking about earlier and you know the autobiographical stories of loving maps it becomes a, a question of i i can't help myself i i think in visual terms uh i think in sort of map making or map interpreting terms, and if you look over the stuff I've written over the years, uh, those metaphors and that language just appears in a lot of the stuff I've written, mm. uh, whether I was intending to go down that path or not. And I think often the best scholarship has that kind of sort of authenticity that it it is it, it expresses you know the, the sort of the true intellect and the 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 true motivations almost involuntarily of the author warts and all i have to say right i mean it, yeah. true right?
2: yeah fair point um which, which makes it which makes the you know the deeply personal scholarship is kind of more tangible sometimes like to to appreciate like i, I don't know like reading law's empire right there's you appreciate like Dworkin's not only genius but also foibles and mm. there's something personal about it it's right. seems i don't know mm.
0: well i'm so glad i could join you guys
2: today on your show this oh. has really been very special this well, has been I, a very special episode of Oil Argument. <laughs> what was that, Mike? I was just so grateful that you
1: included me. This has been fabulous.
2: Well, I, I, if it were up to me, Mike, you'd be included every week.
1: Well, hey, well, you know, you know how to find me,
2: <laughs> <laughs> and you have got to tell us. You said
0: you've got something—an iron that's uh, that you're warming in a fire. So you need to let us know what that is, and uh, and we will uh, make sure you join us again.
1: Uh, I will do by all means.
2: And I think. Uh, we, uh, let's, this is the post roll. Oh, okay. say this is the post roll. Are we going to be back in two weeks, Joe? Is that the plan? Yeah, something like that. I think we're going to try because of the amount of stuff that you, in particular, have going on, right? Um, and and I've got stuff going on too. We're going to try to. We, we are, on average, I think we've been posting a show like three out of four weeks. If you look back over the last, is it gonna be is it gonna be five years this December or four Ooh, years? It is five years. Yeah, is it that's, five years? That's alarming. I feel like someone should buy us a cake, <laughs> uh, but. <laughs> I can um, do that. Yeah, the cake is a lie. Um, it's a portal reference. Mm.
0: Mm.
2: Um, uh, but but it, about three out of four, but I feel like, you know, we're going to, for the next maybe semester, we'll we'll kind of try to hit a once every other week. Yeah, yeah. Slow down just a little bit. Right. But that's a way to, to guarantee that we keep doing the show. I mean, we're not going to do like national security law podcast level. I mean, they're they're putting out it, usually two a day. I think they're on a two a day average. That does seem to be. Yeah. And they're all interesting. I'll, oh, my God. They're amazing. Yeah. They're amazing. Uh, but we're not going to hit that. No. We're going to be slower. <laughs> I, I would say slower, more methodical, but like they've got a speed on everything, right? Yeah, so basically we, we're, we're going to do what we can do though. Exactly. We'll do uh, us. We've got a lot of listener feedback that is kind of building up. Mm. At some point you and I will talk about this. Sure. Um, if you want to get in on that, we're oral podcast at gmail.com. That is oral podcast at gmail.com and also oral argument on Twitter. All one word, no funny business, Right. <laughs> Agreed. Anything else, Joe? Nope. Oh, see, I, I thought maybe this time. I thought maybe you would ask Is about... Mike still with us? Yeah, of course he's I'm, still with us. I, I'm still here. So,
0: so does Mike have anything in closing that he wants to- I was going to go to Mike last,
2: oh, but yeah. Shoot. Okay, well, good. Go to Mike last. All right, Mike, you've got the final word.
1: Snow globe. <laughs> Bastard. <laughs> <laughs>
2: All right. I'll hit stop.